This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We have new details showing how Surrey plans to transition to its own municipal police force instead of the RCMP. The long-awaited plan includes more officers, but at a cost. Grace Key breaks down the different options and the target start date. There's a figure that's been out there that has indicated that we have 843 officers. That is not true. The city of Surrey has released its long-awaited transition plan for a municipal police force, and already there's a dispute over one of the more important figures, the number of officers currently on the streets. The current number of officers that are operating in RCMP in Surrey is 792. Those are the only ones that have been funded by previous councils. Surrey RCMP disputing that, saying the city funds 843 officers and that 51 additional positions are provided to cover any temporary vacancies. The proposal calls for 805 police officers, 16% more frontline officers, 29% more school liaison and youth officers and a 5% increase in staff overall. We're the size of Vancouver, Burnaby and Richmond combined. Just in terms of response times, you need to have manpower out there. You can't be, you have to be proactive, not reactive, and we can only do that if we have enough members. The Surrey Police Force is expected to be up and running by April 1st, 2021. Operating costs would be $192.5 million, a 10.9% increase. The mayor says the likely unionization of the RCMP would eliminate that gap with a pay hike. One-time capital and transition costs of $39.4 million would be spread over a four-year period. Not even the total of one swimming pool that we just recently built in South Surrey. The proposed model would also maintain the services of the five integrated teams, including IHIT and Dog Services. The plan still needs to be approved by the province. Grace Key, Global News. And Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with one more important piece to this. Keith, Solicitor General and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth mm -hmm. has to approve all of this before it goes anywhere, and he appears to be in no rush. No, certainly not, uh, Chris. So this is a pretty weighty report. There's a lot to go through here, and I've talked to Mike Farnworth numerous times about this. He wants to be very sure that the transition plan will not compromise the safety and protection of Surrey residents. If he's not satisfied to that point, then he won't okay it. And again, he emphasizes when we talk to him today on camera, he intends to take his time and his staff want to go through this in very great detail. No rush to make a decision. There's still a lot of work to do in terms of the assumptions that are being used and uh, uh, as I said this is the first iteration of, uh, of the discussion. Um, in terms of public transparency I think it's important that the, uh, the report is out there so people can see for themselves uh, what, the, what the assumptions are. Uh, they can look at it and read it uh, and they are able to uh, engage in the, uh, the discussion that is taking place in Surrey. 
The other thing at play here, of course, is electoral politics. Surrey is literally the battleground that will determine, in, in all likelihood, the, the outcome of the next provincial election. The NDP has six MLAs there out of nine. There's no way they're going to do anything unless uh, they have clear indication that the vast majority of Surrey residents actually want to see this. Doug McCallum was elected at the end of the day with just 13% of the total voting population. Uh, the NDP a little nervous, I think, that that would constitute uh, grounds for such a major shift when, in fact, the population may feel quite differently about it. So this is going to be a long time before a final decision is made. Important details to consider. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. A Calgary man is being remembered as a hero tonight. Over the weekend, he rushed into a B.C. lake to rescue a young girl who was struggling and calling for help. Catherine Urquhart has more on how it all unfolded and what both families are saying about the young man who died tonight. Still photos capture some tender moments as John Stein Palmier shows 10-year-old Peyton Jordan how to skip rocks. Minutes later, he would save her life. Just so grateful and so, so thankful for him for doing what he did, but um, just so sad and so sorry. Friday morning, Peyton was swimming at Windermere Lake near Invermere, B.C., when she started going underwater and calling for help. Despite Stein Palmier's lack of swimming ability, he rushed in to help, saving the little girl. Sadly, the 20-year-old Calgary man later died in hospital. She just felt his hands go down her body and grab onto her feet and throw her out of the water towards the beach, uh, which put her very, very close within arm's reach of other people that were coming out to help as well. And then when everybody got back to the beach, everybody turned around and John, John wasn't there. His mother, Tony, is devastated, but proud. I told him to take care of himself for change. I said, you know, you always look after other people. Tony met Peyton's father at the hospital in Invermere. I went up to give him a hug. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Your son died saving my little girl. And then he just kind of fell to the floor and collapsed. I don't know. Why is he sorry? John did what John does. This was the second time Peyton survived a threat to her life. In 2017, she was treated for a rare form of E. coli, which developed into hemolytic uremic syndrome and can cause life-threatening kidney failure. Now, the traumatic rescue at Windermere Lake. He's absolutely a hero. He'll always be remembered as that in our house. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Some very tense moments in the Jericho neighborhood this morning when a garage erupted into flames. Thick black smoke, intense flames and sparks, all of it waking up the neighbors. Thankfully, fire crews arrived quickly at the property on West 5th and Sassamad and managed to put it out before it spread. The garage, though, was a write-off. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. The garage was completely covered in flames and black smoke, thick, heavy. So of course we panicked, flew down the stairs and this intense heat coming off of it. Just really, really a big, big, big fire. I just woke up and was going and was, then it burst into real hot flames. And then uh, we just called 911. And how about this one on the weekend? 10 people are still out of their apartments due to this scary fire in a West End high-rise on Sunday. Flames and black smoke pouring from a unit on the 15th floor of the Pacific Surf Tower. 
Tomorrow, fire investigators are expected to release more details about the cause and provide the public with some safety tips. There has been some speculation a barbecue may have started the fire. The final report into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in our country concludes the issue is nothing short of genocide, and it calls for sweeping change. Linda Aylesworth has more on the stark numbers from the report and the recommendations aimed at ending the cycle of violence. How do you make up for over a century of misogynistic violence? You launch a national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and listen to nearly 3,000 of the survivors' stories. Your truths now cannot be unheard. You have started to rewrite Canadian history. Lorelai Williams spoke of her heartbreaking truths in Vancouver. I have a missing aunt, Belinda Williams, who has been missing since 1978. Most Canadians have no idea how many stories are out there. My cousin Tanya Holick went missing in 1996. Her DNA was later found on Robert Picton's farm. 200 women and girls have gone missing or have been murdered since the start of the National Inquiry. Listening does not end the horrific levels of gender-based race-field violence. Which is why the inquiry report, three years in the making, includes 231 recommendations. Among them, calling on police services to overhaul the way they handle Indigenous cases. Asking governments across Canada to develop a national action plan and the establishment of a national independent task force to reinvestigate each unresolved case. This colonialism, this discrimination and this genocide explains the high rates of violence against Indigenous women, girls, 2S LGBTQQIA people. Genocide is a powerful word, one that those at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau hope to hear the Prime Minister acknowledge when it was his turn to speak. These truths, difficult, challenging, and uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable day. We don't need to hear the word genocide come out of the Prime Minister's mouth because the families have told us, the survivors have told us their truths. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A brief court appearance today for a man charged in a Penticton Beach assault that left another man in a coma. 21-year-old Thomas Kruger Allen appeared via video link. Global's Shelby Tom explains why his bail hearing was delayed and a warning some may find the images in this report disturbing. 21-year-old Thomas Kruger Allen wore an orange prison shirt and sat quietly as he appeared in Penticton Provincial Court via video from the Okanagan Correctional Center for what was supposed to be the start of his bail hearing. Kruger Allen has been held in custody since the May 3rd incident, but his bail hearing has now been adjourned to a later date. Kruger Allen's defense lawyer told the court he is still waiting for transcripts of the statement his client gave to police as well as a witness statement. 
statement. Chelsea Townend said her husband, Bradley Eliason, was enjoying a bonfire with a friend on Okanagan Lake Beach near Lakeshore Drive around 11.30 p.m. when two intoxicated and unknown men approached. The men allegedly harassed a group of nearby teenagers and Eliason and a friend tried to intervene. The altercation moved to the boardwalk and the Penticton resident was allegedly punched in the face. He fell to the ground and hit his head on the concrete. Eliason required 56 stitches to his skull and he was placed in a medically induced coma because of the swelling on his brain. Several weeks later, Eliason awoke from a coma and Townen says he's making a remarkable recovery at Kelowna General Hospital, but still has a long way to go. He's struggling to form words and sentences. Townen says she hopes Kruger Allen is denied bail. The matter has been put over to tomorrow to fix a date for the bail hearing. Shelby Tom, Global News, Penticton. Victoria police say extra funding is needed for this year's Canada Day celebrations or the party could be in jeopardy. With less than a month to go, Kylie Stanton explains how much they're short and what options are on the table. Yes, the cost of policing the Canada Day festivities here in the capital comes to roughly $122,000 a year since 2011, of which the city of Victoria pays $12,000. But after some major cuts to the 2019 police budget, the force now says it can no longer afford to absorb things like overtime, supplies and logistics. There has to be a recognition uh, that there are security costs and policing costs, not just what you see uh, front and centre, but also a lot of work goes in to making sure that the actual venue and the event and those coming down uh, are kept safe throughout the event. In a letter to City Hall, the finance chairman of the police board breaks down the budget that leaves VicPD responsible for a balance of $78,400 per year in unfunded expenditures. It's requesting additional funding from the city to cover the shortfall. But Councillor Ben Isaac has suggested reducing the scope of the party to just the legislature grounds and nearby streets in order to lessen the costs. So far, the idea isn't getting much support from the community. It's been a very well-run um, day festivities and things, and I think it should continue. Maybe scale back on something else. You just have to be ready, and I'm sure they are, but it just costs money to be ready. Organizers say scaling back the event would be a logistical nightmare. There's no way of knowing how many people will attend, and it wouldn't be practical to ticket the event or monitor entry points. You know, we've streamlined it, talked to the police over the last 19 years, and we do what we can to limit the amount of uh, police, but this is the 21st century, and Either we got to bring back the budget for the police, but, or more importantly, in their contingency, we need to look at funding uh, police for, for all the events we have. Mayor and Council will be considering the issue on Thursday, but at this point in the planning process, it will cost more to cancel the event than fund the police. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Kylie. Right now, though, if you live in a high rise, you're likely familiar with the pain of having a broken elevator. The delays and the inconvenience. But imagine if that's your only way in and out of the building. That is the case for a Vancouver woman who says she's been stuck in her downtown condo, missing work and appointments for a week. John Waugh has her story and what's causing the holdup. It's just hard to say this is home right now because it doesn't feel like that. Over the past seven days, the comforts of Shannon Elmer's downtown condo have become crushing reminders of her confinement. Work, medical appointments, exercising, like these are all things I'm missing and I'm inside my apartment. 
The Strata building's only elevator has been broken since May 27th, stripping the 34-year-old quadriplegic of the freedom she fought so hard to get back. I'm really independent. I don't like asking for help if I know I can do it myself, but I need to ask people for help. So it's just, that's frustrating. Elmer had just purchased her seventh floor condo four years ago when the avid snowboarder was struck by an out of control skier, leaving her paralyzed. She battled back to reclaim an active outdoor lifestyle. And now just having everything ripped away from me again, I just, it's heartbreaking. But losing all of that because of a broken elevator is nothing compared to a dedicated teacher being kept from her students two weeks before report cards are due. I need to assess my students and I can't do that and I miss, I miss working. I love the kids there. Key Pacific Property Management says a service contractor first thought it was damaged fuses then discovered the motor was blown. Schindler Elevator Corporation providing this statement, we're actively working with the property manager to resolve the issue. Certain parts necessary to repair the unit had to be ordered, and we've been working with our suppliers to obtain them as quickly as possible. I don't believe they're doing a great job at all, so I think they need to step up their game. Those parts are expected to arrive in a couple of days. No word yet about the finished repairs. Until then, home care, friends and family will have to face seven flights of stairs. So Elmer's 700 square foot condo doesn't become solitary confinement. John Hua, Global News. The next round of cannabis legalization could be a financial bonanza for Canadian companies. A new report says the edibles market could be worth nearly $3 billion in Canada and nearly $200 billion worldwide. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, the potential financial windfall could come with a number of complications. Coming soon to a cannabis retail store near you, Treats and Treats Cookies. The fun baked right in. The marijuana edibles company ready to serve customers. And owner Yannick Craigwell waiting for the federal government to finally legalize. I'm looking for a means for a happy life. <laughs> a new report from accounting firm Deloitte suggests the alternative cannabis market is enormous. $1.6 billion just for edibles and a half a billion dollars each for cannabis-infused drinks and alternative delivery methods like oils. So these are consumers that did not necessarily want to smoke and are use combustibles and they're looking for a wide range of use cases to, to, in finding a solution to their problems. While legalization of edibles was promised one year after the original launch date, this phase comes with a host of challenges. Serving size, dosages, packaging, the rollout will be a slow burn. From everything that I've heard that you're not going to be seeing uh, legal edibles uh, in, retail, uh, in retail outlets um, you know, on October 17th. It may take some time. Craigwell walking a fine line. In business, but keeping a low profile, selling online across the country. He is cautiously optimistic the government will keep entrepreneurs like him in mind when the rules finally drop. I'm hoping for a compassionate government at this point. If you're going to legalize, why are you looking to, to punish at the same time? We're trying to, I think we're a, we're a country of people who make common sense decisions. I expect that from my government. Canadian companies poised to take advantage of this massive new market, estimated to top $200 billion worldwide in 2020. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A new study on changing the way drug users receive their welfare payments could reduce drug use around so-called Welfare Wednesday, but it could also increase drug-related harm. 
BC's Center on Substance Use followed nearly 200 drug users, some who received the standard monthly check and others who received their checks on different days. They found that those who received their checks on different days than the usual Welfare Wednesday were less likely to increase their drug use around check days, but they also found that they were more likely to experience some drug-related harms, including overdose frequency. The study recommends changing the welfare system to allow for individual choice about the timing of those payments. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The quality isn't great, but this dash cam video from a semi-trailer unit still gives us a pretty good view of a multi-vehicle pileup on a Texas freeway. Eleven vehicles were involved in the crash. Three people, including two children, were hurt. Thankfully, all of the injuries are minor. Investigators are still looking into the cause, but the truck driver says a driver cut him off, and there may be some evidence there that he's right. He says he couldn't stop quickly enough. Donald Trump has begun his long-delayed state visit to the U.K., hosted by the Queen and the royal family. And while the visit is surrounded by the usual pomp and ceremony, true to form, the president also managed to work in some political insults into the mix. White ties and tiaras at a dinner fit for a queen and a president. Inside Buckingham Palace tonight, with several members of the royal family looking on, Queen Elizabeth toasted the special relationship between the two countries. Mr. President, as we look to the future, I'm confident that our common values and shared interests will continue to unite us. President Trump returned the favor. On behalf of all Americans, I offer a toast to the eternal friendship of our people. The official royal welcome came earlier in the day out in the palace garden. The attire, undeniably British. The music, unmistakably American. The royals are masters of pomp, but the circumstances this time around are a bit unique. President Trump insulted his royal host just days before he arrived, calling out Prince Harry's wife, the American Meghan Markle, for her criticism of him during the 2016 election. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, that would be good. There are a lot of people moving here. So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. The president then denied he said it, both via tweet and on camera. No, I made no bad comment. Thank you. In London today, the president did what presidents do, including laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown warrior. But again, it's what he said that's creating diplomatic drama. On the eve of his visit, the president criticized outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May for her handling of Brexit negotiations. He waded into British politics, all but endorsing Boris Johnson as the next prime minister in the middle of a highly contested election. And just minutes before touching down in London today, he called the city's mayor, Sadiq Khan, a stone-cold loser via tweet. The two have clashed in the past, and Khan says President Trump does not deserve a state visit, preferring instead that the royal family roll up its red carpet.
The lawyer for a high-profile Vancouver businessman indicted in that college admissions scandal in the U.S. has signaled his client's possible defense strategy. David Sadu has pleaded not guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud. He's accused of paying $200,000 for someone else to take his son's college entrance exams. Several reports say during a court hearing today, Sadu's lawyer contended that because the money went to a school, the payments were not a bribe but a donation. Fifty people are charged in connection with the alleged scheme. More bad news tonight for Boeing. The company has issued an alert about the safety of some of the parts in its jets. Boeing says some of its 737 jets could have faulty parts in their wings that could crack or fail, and it's advising airlines to inspect the parts. Now, the FAA says a failure of that part wouldn't necessarily bring a plane down, but it could damage an aircraft while it's in flight. It's the latest problem Boeing faces as it tries to get its 737 MAX jets back in the air after they were grounded by two deadly crashes. Tomorrow marks the 30th anniversary of one of the bloodiest government crackdowns in history, China using tanks and soldiers to crush pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square. But there's one place you won't hear about it, in China, where the government has virtually erased the massacre from history and is determined to prevent it from happening again. It was the day that changed modern China and which the government is determined to forget. When 30 years ago, tanks rolled into Beijing's Tiananmen Square to stop protesters demanding democracy. While there's no confirmed toll, hundreds to several thousand people were killed. These images are illegal in China. The massacre has been scrubbed from the history books and the internet so thoroughly, many young Chinese don't even know what happened. These kind of internal security controls, media controls, internet controls, I think are profoundly disturbing. You can't search the internet without being censored. China is so determined not to have another Tiananmen uprising, it's created an unprecedented surveillance state, using artificial intelligence to mine social media and integrating facial recognition into a vast network of security cameras. Surveillance here is also big business, and some Americans are taking part. David Brady, a Duke University professor, has developed cameras that can clearly record an area miles across and from far enough away, people don't know they're being watched. Do you have any qualms about that? Giving China more tools to monitor its population? I don't, no. There's cameras everywhere in the world. Every country sets their standards for what they think is, is, is appropriate. Brady's cameras are already installed in China's top cities and tested for Tiananmen Square, which now may be the most closely watched public place in the world. Richard Engel, NBC News, Beijing. Another retail chain is closing its stores for one day to give its employees diversity training. The cosmetics chain Sephora will close all 400 of its stores on Wednesday, along with its distribution centers and corporate offices. This comes just over a month after Grammy-nominated singer SZA said she was racially profiled at one of its California locations, saying an employee called security to make sure she wasn't shoplifting. In Health Matters tonight, a new study from UBC says when it comes to teenagers and sleep, it's quality, not quantity, that matters. Researchers studied more than 3,000 teenagers aged 13 to 17 
and found no relationship between those who had less than eight hours sleep a night and poor health outcomes. But they did find that teens who had trouble falling or staying asleep, even just one night a week, were more than two times more likely to report poorer health than teens who fell asleep easily. The outcomes were stronger in boys than in girls. Other studies have found that placing restrictions on caffeine and screen time before bed would improve teens' health. Jay, we come to you first. He went into tonight's Jeopardy gunning for the all-time record. Spoiler alert, leaked video shows how James Holzhauer did. We'll get to that right after the weather forecast. But just ahead of Christy, for the first time in a couple of weeks, some 4,000 residents of the northern Alberta town of High Level are back home tonight after being forced to evacuate because of wildfires. But as Global's Julia Wong reports, they can't relax quite yet. The stream of vehicles... Are you just coming back home? Yeah. Well, welcome back. ...started Monday morning. This is your re-entry package? As high-level residents and their animals came home. She was sitting beside the car all morning. Say hello. <laughs> A welcome committee greeted evacuees two weeks after fire forced them out. Patrick and Michelle Weber were among the first through the blockade. Uh, you guys have any kids? Yeah, we got a little boy yeah, in the back. Getting to work, throwing away spoiled food, reorganizing the baby's room, and settling in. Yeah. Back home. <laughs> Great. I can't wait to sleep in my own bed. You know, get back to my own routine, get him back on a normal routine. There's a lot on their to-do lists, but they're relieved to be back. I knew my house was still standing. I knew everybody's was still standing and we were safe, so that's all that mattered to me, really. Leonard and Susan Jansen spent Monday cleaning out their camper after living in it for a couple weeks. They couldn't believe it when they heard High Level was reopening. We didn't eat, we didn't sleep. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> was <laughs> anxiety kicking in so bad. We still have lots of food. The priority now, cleaning up after leaving in a hurry and savoring being home. Very thankful. That everything is went so good. But also, like, be thankful for all the people that worked so hard to save our homes. They worked around the clock. Home sweet home for now, but with a dash of uncertainty. High level remains under an evacuation alert, and residents may have to leave again at a moment's notice. Julia Wong, Global News, High Level, Alberta. All right, pretty dry weekend we're just coming off of, and there is a change coming in the forecast for this week. Christy's got the details now. Christy? Thanks, Chris. Yes, certainly unwelcome by some. A lot of people enjoying the sunshine, but we certainly do need the moisture across the region. This is the scene out there right now. Blue sky and what I call Simpson clouds. Beautiful shot there. Temperatures hit the low 20s today. Quick tally of your May. Looking back, there's a lot of zeros in there. So when we tallied the amount of rain that we had, we had less than half with only 30.4 millimeters of rain and we really only had two periods of rain one sort of three-day stretch and one five-day stretch otherwise it was dry across may and uh through much of may and now we're starting out june similarly now we do have one more nice day on the way where we'll be in the low 20s again but then the temperatures will plummet look at this well below seasonal by a good four degrees potentially on thursday by hitting only 14 degrees but it looks like we do climb out of it eventually but we have a stretch of a good 
three to four days of cooler weather. And it's because of this upper level low that's going to shift right over the south coast. So this is a system that doesn't bring in a lot of rain. What it brings in is more unsettled conditions. So we'll see scattered showers, but the big change will be in the temperatures as it pulls in that cooler air mass across our region. But it does clear out by Sunday and we should see another ridge of high pressure develop. So get through the next little while. Uh, We do need the moisture. Now we have had showers across the northern two-thirds of the province. It's really just the south that is mostly dry. That will be the case through the day tomorrow. It's not until Wednesday that that system pushes onto the south coast, bringing in the showers into our region. And we aren't expecting much. We're talking about five to eight millimeters through the day on Wednesday, and that's about it. But backing up and looking at your Tuesday, showers across the north, a risk of thunderstorms across the south, sunshine. So anywhere south of Williams Lake, continuing with sunny and hot conditions, and that's the same for Metro Vancouver also. It's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, potentially Saturday that we are expecting the showers to return in the much cooler conditions. Jay Janauer sent us the weather window from today. He's up in Haida Gwaii enjoying a little fishing, and that was from this morning. Queen Charlotte Lodge, man, beautiful place. Thanks very much, Christy. Okay, fair warning, major spoiler alert. If you haven't yet seen tonight's Jeopardy, just turn off the TV for the next minute and a half and then come back. Plenty of time for you to have done that. Leaked video complete with bad audio shows how a remarkable streak ended. By now you're probably familiar with the story of James Holzauer, who went into tonight's game with 32 wins and more than $2.4 million in winnings. So how did he do tonight? Just watch. Over to James now. He had 23,400, and his response was correct. His wager, a modest one for the first time, that takes him to 24,799. So, Emma, it's up to you. If you came up with the correct response, you're going to be the new Jeopardy champion. Did you? You did. What did you wager? Oh, gosh, 20,000. What a payday. 46,801. What a game. Oh my God. $1 more than James would have had if he doubled down. Holzauer falls about $58,000 short of Ken Jennings' record total of just over $2.5 million. The big difference, it took Jennings 74 games to reach that number. Holzauer almost got there in just 32 games. And he joked on Twitter today that he regrets inviting Drake to the taping of Jeopardy. All right, Squires back with sports. Lots of drama last night, the Raptors game. Oh, it's been great. It ha- mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it, and I think maybe I've mentioned this before. When was the last time you can remember something eclipsing the Stanley Cup final to Canadians? I can't. The Raptors have eclipsed the Blues and the Bruins. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last night's loss by the Toronto Raptors in game two of their series with Golden State had some good things and some bad things as Every game does. Bad was, of course, the way the Raptors let Golden State score the first 18 points of the third quarter. Good was the Raptors' defense late in the game. They shut Golden State out for most of the final five minutes. Bad, of course, and in some ways bad luck, was a three-pointer that Andre Iguodala made late in the game to basically salt things away. He was wide open on that play. Raptors coach Nick Nurse said the idea there was to stop Steph Curry from getting an open three-point shot and living with someone else on the Warriors trying it. We were up guarding hard and we put two on Steph and we, hell, he threw it, almost threw it right to Kawhi, right? Pretty good defense. You know, they were scrambling around, running around like crazy, but 
Um, and they found Iggy, right? They found him. And like I said, I'm, I, if he's going to take that and give us a chance to get the ball back and win the game, I'm, we're going to probably live with that. It wasn't like we were disrespecting him and not, not trying to guard him. We were in a trap and rotating out of there. And, and um, again, I'd like to go back and try that again about 10 times and see if one of them doesn't go our way. Will it go the Blues way tonight? It pretty much needs to. They're down 2-1 in their series against Boston. Stanley Cup final. This is the first minute of the first period. And it's Ryan O'Reilly wrapping it around and scoring. So that gives the Blues the early goal. That's a good start. 1-0. But then Boston would tie it. Charlie Coyle. The big man. The big Zed. Zdeno Chera throwing that in front. Coyle with the rebound. 1-1. Speaking of rebounds. Alex Petrangelo, his shot creates a rebound. Nice little move right here. There you go. And Vladimir Tarasenko comes in there late in the second. It's still 2-1 for St. Louis. The Women's World Cup of Soccer starts Friday with the home team from France playing South Korea. Canada doesn't play its first game until a week from today against Cameroon. The Canadians come into this ranked fifth in the world right now, but odds makers don't have us as one of the favorites. A lot of betting sites have Canada at 20 to 1 to win it, 25 to 1 maybe. The U.S. and France are co-favorites. However, those two teams could meet in the quarterfinals. Canada should get out of the group stage. And if you look at all Canada's warm-up matches this year, we are unbeaten in nine games in 2019. One thing about Canada and international tournaments, our women always have a chance to do big things because of number 12. Christine Sinclair, whose body still doesn't really believe her birth certificate. She is 35, but she still scores like she's 25. And she might just use the biggest stage to set the biggest record for women. Most goals ever in international competition. It's really just a matter of time before Sinclair has that record to herself. And she'll have it for a long time because nobody else is even close. Think of it this way. Christine Sinclair on Canada's women's team is the equivalent of having Cristiano Ronaldo on Canada's men's team. Now this will likely be Sinclair's final World Cup. The good news is Canada shouldn't have much trouble getting through its group stage to the knockout stage. These three teams do not pose much of a threat to the Canadians if we're on our game. And as we've said, Canada hasn't lost a game in 2019. The Canadians will have some younger players as well to help Sinclair and also carry the torch forward like Chilliwack's Jordan Heidema. But as it has been for years, no matter who has been the national team coach, Canada goes as Christine Sinclair goes. Speaking of great scores, yesterday's Zlatan Ibrahimovic. This is why they pack stadiums when he comes to your town. Passes to himself and then the scissor kick goal. I have to see this a few more times. I just have to. <laughs> Again, chest. I'll just pass it to myself and do this. Scissor kicks basically one way and then turns and does it the other way and scores against New England. L.A. still lost the game, but if they gave out points for style, this wouldn't even be close. Extra credit. Novak Djokovic, who's been known to do some amazing things in his career, too, against Jan Leonard Struff, the guy who knocked... Uh, Denis Shapovalov out of the French Open earlier in this tournament. This is no contest, really. Number one, Djokovic 
needed three sets to get rid of Struff and had some impressive moments like that nice little backhand drop shot. 6-3, 6-2, we're in the third set now. Uh-huh. Have a nice flight home. Stokovic is staying. Straight set win over Struff. All right, Ross, thank you. That shocking accident on Sunday caught on video in Venice. A huge cruise ship slamming into a smaller tour boat and a dock has reignited an emotional debate in the world-renowned tourist destination. A growing number of Venetians are now demanding that cruise ships be banned from their famous canals. Tonight, work crews are patching up the MSC Opera after a terrifying collision. Sirens blaring as the 66,000-ton luxury cruise ship unable to stop, slammed into a tiny tourist riverboat Sunday morning in Venice. Panicked tourists ran for safety, escaping the riverboat just before impact. At least four were injured, the riverboat's bow crushed, and the concrete pier badly damaged. The riverboat passengers were having breakfast on that top deck in the sun when they saw the cruise ship closing in. The staff is, is yelling, get off the boat, run. Tonight, the cruise company only saying it was a technical problem and they're cooperating with the investigation. Cruise ships were already controversial here. After this, some want them banned. Callie Cobiella, NBC News, Venice. Just sheer Scary. panic and some amazing video. A lot of people had the cameras going, as you do nowadays. Well, you're running for yeah. your life. When you're running, for running backwards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some beautiful photos of the sunset over the last few days. What's mm -hmm. it going to look like out there tonight? Pretty nice, that's for sure. So sunset is after nine o'clock, and we're feeling warm well into the about midnight, and we'll see that again tomorrow. But by by the time you wake up Wednesday morning, you could probably expect a few showers. All right, and a quick thanks again to everybody for an awesome miracle weekend. Have a good night. Thanks for watching.